Well, on June the 6th, 1944, Dwight David Eisenhower was the supreme Allied commander of all Allied forces that were beginning the liberation of Europe from Nazi tyranny and savagery. Now, you and I, of course, know that the landings on D-Day in Normandy were successful, that eventually Nazism was pushed out of Europe. But on June the 6th, success was far from a foregone conclusion. As a matter of fact, Eisenhower actually wrote a note. I think we have a copy of it here, a handwritten note that describes what he would say if the landings failed. And in this note, he said, all airmen, troops, and Navy perform their duties. If any failure attaches to this effort, it is entirely mine. Now, you want to talk about leadership? That is flat out owning it right there. I mean, that's like, look, we're going to put over a million men into Europe. And if they fail, it's on me. Whoa. How much would we give for a statesman or a leader like that in 2017? But that's another sermon. Don't say anything right now. But my point is, Eisenhower was a fascinating figure. But just like the military operation that he devised and supervised, Eisenhower himself was far from a foregone conclusion to actually lead the Allies into this battle for Europe. Now, it's true that he was a graduate of West Point. He was an army man through and through. But did you know that the Supreme Allied Commander for all Allied forces in Europe in 1944, prior to that war, had never fired a shot in combat? Dwight David Eisenhower never saw the trenches of an infantryman. In World War I, just after he had graduated from West Point, he was training tank commanders here in the States. The armistice to end World War I was signed one week before he was scheduled to ship out for France. And yet, it is this guy that we look back on and we identify as a, as a military genius. But the fact of the matter is that Eisenhower's real genius lay in two very critical components, people and planning, people and planning. As I said, over a million men would land in Normandy over the next few weeks. And those men and their munitions and their machinery had to be supplied. They had to be cared for medically when they were wounded in battle. And it was a logistical nightmare. But that was Eisenhower's brilliance. It wasn't so much in the, in the military strategy that went into it, though that was significant. No, Eisenhower's genius really and truly lay in a dogged diligence in the details. Now, the fact of the matter is that the liberation of Europe was absolutely a noble aspiration. It's hard to imagine where we would be if they had failed. But it was this incredible diligence in the details that separated success from failure. And I want to suggest to you this morning, as we continue this series for ATX, that every single vision, every 
dream, every, every calling is going to live or die by the exact same diligence in the details. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and tell him like you mean it. Get your details on. Now, there, there's an old saying that goes, the devil is in the details. And from a certain way of looking at it, that, that's somewhat true. But as you study God's word, as you examine God's work across generations and centuries and millennia that he's been working in this world, you find this incredible, relentless diligence in the details. God is actually in the details. And if you and I are going to participate with him, if we're going to produce for him in this world, then you and I have to get down into the details as well. You see, we began this series last week for ATX as a kind of as a refresher and a reminder of who we are and what we're all about, what we're for as a church, that our, our true north is to grow the community of Christ one life at a time. And, and as we do that, our prayer is that God will use us to redefine church for the city of Austin and beyond. That's, that's why we get up every morning. But we also notice that not only is what's true for a church collectively, it's true for us personally and individually that, that every single one of us, everyone, is created by God for God. That, that there is a calling on your life. He created you on purpose with a purpose. If you have a pulse, you got a purpose. Ask your neighbor, you got a pulse? Hopefully the answer is yes. And if you got a pulse, you got a purpose. There's a reason for you to be here. And if you and I personally are going to find and realize that purpose, then we've got to have the same kind of determination and diligence in the details. We're, we're going through this series looking at it through the biblical lens of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, of course, was an Israelite living in Persian captivity about 450 years before Jesus. And as such, Nehemiah was not in a position of power. But through his capabilities, through his determination, through his work ethic, he had risen to a level of trust that he was actually cupbearer to the king of, of Persia, Artaxerxes. And at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, he is in the, the Persian city of Susa. Persia, of course, is modern-day Iran. And it's there in Susa that, that Nehemiah gets word that Jerusalem, that, that epicenter of Israel's identity, spiritually, politically, nationally, Jerusalem lays in ruins. That it's specifically the walls that protect Jerusalem from invaders have been destroyed and are in rubble. The gates have been burned. And it's against this backdrop that God gives Nehemiah a calling. He, he gives him a vision of what can be to, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you think about that and you're like, whoa, that's cool. And then you come down to the details that Nehemiah is a slave. He's 900 overland miles from Jerusalem there in Susa. And so he's got this, he's got this calling from God, this vision, but, but there's this gap between what is and, and what if. There's, there's this gap 
between the potential and the actual. And it's in the details that God closes the gap. It's in the details that you and I begin to realize the vision or the calling that, that he's given to us. You see, a, a, a mission from God is only made manifest if, if we focus on the fundamentals, if we drill down into the details, if we parse out the particulars, it's only when those things happen that the vision becomes reality, that the dream becomes a reality. And this is where we find Nehemiah. There's this incredible description of this pivot point in Nehemiah's calling that I think is not only a narrative and a description for us, it's actually instruction manual. It's actually a, a how-to for us to take a calling from God and turn it into reality, to live it out day in and day out. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to look at Nehemiah chapter number 2. In Nehemiah 2, you, you see Nehemiah pivoting. Remember, chapter 1 was almost entirely Nehemiah's prayer to God. When he heard about the status of Jerusalem, when he heard about the destruction of the walls, Nehemiah said that he began to, to mourn and to fast and to pray. And before we dive into Nehemiah 2, it's really important. It's really, really important that we remember this, this profound progression. Nehemiah prayed, then he planned. He prayed, he connected with God personally. He, he asked God for direction, for favor. Remember, he started by praying for forgiveness for the past and favor for the future. So there was this prayer. Then he started to plan. Can I just tell you that my tendency, my natural drift is to do the opposite? My natural plan is to identify a problem, start to plan out what to do about the problem, because I'm all about solving it. How many of you, I, I just do not like problems. I don't like them. My first step, if Julie announces a problem that, that we collectively has, have as a family or, or she has personally, my first step is, well, let me tell you, here, okay, let's figure it out. Let's go. Nehemiah didn't do that. He began in a posture of prayer. He began receiving and listening to God. Then he started the planning. Then he started the planning. In chapter 2 of the book of Nehemiah, we see the plan coming into focus. Look at what happens. This, this is Nehemiah writing the very first verses of chap, chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, there is so much going on here. We, we've got to take a time out. First of all, I want you to notice the fact that Nehemiah said he had never been sad in the king's presence. Now, at this point, we don't know exactly how long Nehemiah had been cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. 
The cupbearer, of course, was the one who was responsible to taste from the king's cup to make sure that it wasn't poisoned before serving the king. But we do know that the chapter 1 happened about six months before chapter 2. So it had been six months. Nehemiah had been at least six months. He had been serving King Artaxerxes, and the king had never seen him sad before. Now, let me just ask you a question. Over six months of going to work, don't, don't you have a bad day at some point? I mean, maybe, maybe Nehemiah's rooster didn't crow and wake him up on time. Maybe there was, a, you know, Sousa rush hour was just a bear one morning. He walked in just, oh, I can't. But Nehemiah was so wise as an employee to the king. He knew that his problems were not the king's problems. And he kept this part. He made sure that when he was before the king, he was on. It was game time, baby. I remember when Troy Aikman was quarterback in the Dallas Cowboys back in the 90s during their incredible run of, of Super Bowls and jail terms that <laughs> Troy wasn't in jail, but a lot of his teammates were. You talk about tough Troy, I mean, Troy was tough, man. He would get, his first season, he spent the whole season looking up through the hole in Texas Stadium's roof. He was on his back all the time, just got beat like a rented mule. And somebody would say, Troy, man, are you going to take this weekend off? He's like, uh-uh. He, I mean, he's tough. That Henrietta, Oklahoma country, tough. He goes, no. He goes, we've got 16 games. He goes, there's 16 games I get paid to play. I'm showing up if I can walk. That was Nehemiah's approach. It's a great example for us. When you work for someone, when you work with a group of people, you put on your big boy britches, your, big, your mature girl britches, <laughs> and you show up. You show up. Be a professional. Be a professional. Nehemiah had never been sad before the king, which, which tells you he was really, really discerning. It, it reminds me of what Jesus commanded us in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, I am sending you out like a sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. You know, a lot of times as followers of Christ, we fail to realize the calling that God's placed on our lives because we're not shrewd enough. We're not wise and discerning. Nehemiah is not being manipulative, but he's being shrewd as a snake and innocent as a dove. He, he is completely authentic, but he was wise. He, he, he saved it, and he picked his spot exactly. And he was before the king and, and because he had been such a professional servant and because he had been so valuable, when his countenance changed, the king noticed. The king said, man, this, this is not normal for you. You, you, don't, you don't act like this when you're at work. Something must be really troubling you. It is brilliant, brilliant. And in verse 3, Nehemiah explains to him, of course I'm sad, the, the land of my forefathers are our national identity lays in ruins. Look at what the king said in verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? 
What are you requesting? Again, so I prayed to the God of heaven. This is a quick prayer. This is one of those bullet prayers. You know, you just launch it. Because the king, Artaxerxes, he's not a God follower. He's a, he's a pagan, polytheistic potentate. So when the king says, what are you asking? This is the moment. Here, here we go. If, if Nehemiah stammers, if Nehemiah stutters or falters or fails, the vision is dead on arrival. It's interesting that in verse 2, remember he said, then I was very afraid. You see, when we see King Artaxerxes, we think of a guy on a throne and, you know, knighting people, this, that, and the other, and, and you know, a benevolent dictator, really. But in actuality, Artaxerxes, this was a much different time than the one you and I live in. If Artaxerxes got irritated with you, death, just off with his head, just, just for the amusement's sake, just for sheer entertainment value. You know what? I don't like his look. Kind of like uh, Phoenix in, uh, in Gladiator. But this time, Artaxerxes went like that. And Nehemiah begins to make his request known. Now, what we're about to see is the genius of Nehemiah as a leader, as someone who was diligent in the details. There are five functional factors that have to be in place for the potential to become the actual. Five functional factors. Check this out. Uh, and I want you to write these down in your notes section. Write these down because we're going to come back to these in a minute. Write them down. <clears throat> Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And then in the following verses, in this conversation with the king, the most powerful person on the planet during this period, Nehemiah lays out this huge ask, this monster request. He says, Here, here's what I need. And it's almost like their roles have reversed. Nehemiah is telling King Artaxerxes what he needs, and Artaxerxes is, is just, okay, hold on, let me, let me get a pen. I'm going to write this down. The first thing that, the first functional factor that Nehemiah mentions is why. He says, let, let me go back to my, my homeland where my father's graves are. This is, this is home for us, and it's, it's grieved me. So he, he gets out the why. He communicates that why. Then he moves in and he goes, when? I want to I go right now. In the following verses, Artaxerxes moves to the third functional factor. And he goes, how long are you going to be gone? He goes, you're, you're my, you're my cupbearer. We, we got this thing going on. And, and I trust you. How do I know when you'll be back? 
And Nehemiah had an answer for him. He, he had done the homework. He had figured out how long the trip would take, how long the work would take. And then number four, how much? As you read through Nehemiah chapter two, Nehemiah just starts asking the king. He asks him for traveling papers to give him safe passage across that 900-mile journey. He asks the king to give him a note for the king's forest keeper. He says, I'm going to need some timber for this job. Not only for the job, but for the house that I'm going to have to have if I'm going to live there in Jerusalem. I mean, he just, he just lays it out there. And Artaxerxes says yes to all of it. There, there's a fascinating little aside in verse 6 that I, I didn't include on the screen. In Nehemiah, as he's telling this story, he says, the queen was there beside the king. Genius. Genius. For two reasons. Number one, the king next to the queen wants to appear powerful, wants to appear benevolent. It's called male ego. It, it, you know, I'm sure it doesn't exist now, but a long time ago that was a real thing. But, but uh, number two, it, it means that the king was not conducting official business. If the queen was there by his side then it, this, was, this was a downtime. The king was available. The king was accessible. He, he was going to be a little more chill with, you know, with his main squeeze right there beside him. Again, Nehemiah's wisdom and discernment about the timing of when to ask, of when to put this out there. Now, this is the pivot moment. Look down in verse 11. In verse 11, Nehemiah says, So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Listen. Vision, especially especially at the beginning, a vision is vulnerable to vandals. A vision is vulnerable to vandals. Nehemiah is still in the planning phase. He's doing the inspection of the walls of Jerusalem. He's gotten there. He's made that 900-mile journey. But now he has to figure out, what do we do? What, what is this going to look like? And so he goes out. And he, and he makes a circle around the city of Jerusalem. But he's not telling anybody what he's doing yet. He, he's not broadcasting it. He's not creating a, a reality TV show for it. He, he's just going, just you and me, one other guy, let, let's, just, let's just take a look around. Let's just go see. Now, next week we're going to talk about the vision vandals. Next week we're, we're going to talk about oppression. We're going to talk about opposition. 
But for right now, I want to just show you just real quickly, verse 19 of Nehemiah chapter 2. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked? Listen, I have never in my life chased a God goal, a monster mission, and not been scared to death by it. And I have never in my life chased a God goal or a monster mission and not faced opposition. If you chase what God calls you to, you will face opposition. It may even be your family. Your, your family may be like, really? That, that's so interesting. You want to start your own business. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> it, it, may be, it may be from people that you consider friends. Like, oh, man, I, I, don't know if, I don't know if I'd do that right now. The economy, man, things are kind of up in the air. Got, you know, listen, be very, very careful about who you share your calling with and when. Because a vision is vulnerable to the vandals. But Nehemiah is on it. He is after it. Now, I told you there were five functional factors, didn't I? I only gave you four. Some of you were like starting to freak out, like I'm going to have to ask him about this because he said five and I've only got four. The why is the most significant spiritual factor. Number five is the most significant functional factor. Number five is who. Who are you going to do this with? Who will you surround yourself with? Who will you recruit? Who will you equip? Who will you inspire? Who will you check up on? Who will you befriend? Who will be the single greatest functional factor in whether or not you fulfill your vision or I fulfill the vision God gives to us personally? Who? Look at the opening verses of chapter 3. Verse 1. Then Eliashib... The high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. Consecrate means they set it apart for divine purposes. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And then next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The fish gate was built by the sons of Hassanah. They laid the beam, set up its doors, and installed its boats and its bars, bolts and its bars. And the rest of chapter 3 is basically a roll call of the duty roster of who built where around the city of Jerusalem. You see Nehemiah's diligence in the details? You see how he, he, he got down into the nitty and the gritty? Nehemiah was Israel's Eisenhower. He, he, he had this incredible vision, this calling, this noble aspiration. But, but he managed the minutiae. He, he, 
he parsed the particulars and, and, he, and he figured out what it would take to move this calling, this vision from the potential to the actual. It, it's funny that we would, we would mention Eisenhower as a paragon of planning, but he, he was. But he had, a, he had another quote that I think is really, really interesting. This is what Eisenhower said about planning. He said, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless. But planning is indispensable. See, in war, the enemy gets a vote. You, you have to have a plan, but just know that when you engage the enemy, when you go to work, there will be opposition. There, there, there will be changes along the way, but you can only audible from a plan. The, the plan matters. The, the great 20th century philosopher Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan. Till they get hit in the mouth. That's the truth. How many of you, how many of you ha have kids at home? Let me just see a show of hands. If you, you have kids at home. Planning. <laughs> Woo. But our families have a calling, don't they? Don't, don't, don't we have a mission as mom and dad? How many, how many of you maybe are not yet married, but you'd like to be? And you're thinking, man, if God would just bring me somebody with, with the faith of Mother Teresa who looks like Giselle, that's all I'm asking, God. Just, just, just that, just those two things. Man, dating, getting married, you, you better have a, a vision and a true north that you're chasing that you won't compromise on, but, but understand you're going to have to compromise at some point. Somebody who's married, help me preach. Amen. That was either a vote of affirmation or somebody who needs counseling right after this service. I'm going to go with the former. When God gives you a colossal calling, and you chase it with everything that you've got. He also, he also presents this phenomenal promise. It's in Romans chapter 8, and it's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to just let the words sink in a little bit. For God, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Remember, if you've got a pulse, you've got a purpose. 
It's a God-given purpose. That's your, that's your privilege. That's your responsibility to manifest in this world. And that purpose begins and ends in Jesus. Nehemiah is fascinating. Nehemiah is instructive. Nehemiah is helpful. Nehemiah is God-given. But never forget that all roads lead to the cross. And the inescapable fact that Jesus Christ died on that cross, that's a fact that is beyond dispute. Nobody of any intelligence who's done any amount of homework could argue that. Now what that death and resurrection represent that, that can be a discussion. I kind of hesitate to think that anybody would be so arrogant as to say they know that he wasn't resurrected. Because they can't explain it scientifically or empirically, then it couldn't have happened. Really? If you don't understand something, it couldn't have happened? I don't know about that. See, his resurrection carries with it the offer of new life. You want to talk about a vision? You want to talk about a calling? The life that is truly life. And it begins at the most challenging point of all. It's, it's, it's that point where you choose, where I chose to kneel to bow the knee and humble myself before God. For you to humble yourself, to acknowledge that he is God and we are not. To not play God. And to choose to trust him more than we trust ourselves. I want to ask you if you will bow your heads for just a brief moment. If you're here today and you've never taken that step of faith, we want to invite you to do that right now. Just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of commitment. A prayer of humility. But also a prayer of victory. To answer the call of God on your life. To step into the purpose that came with your pulse. If that's you this morning, then just pray right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God and just say something like this. Just, just say, Jesus, I need you. I admit you are the Lord, and I am not. And so I confess my sin to you. I, I receive, I accept your forgiveness. And I choose to believe that you died for me. 
And Jesus, I choose to believe that you rose again from the dead for me. And I will follow you from this moment forward with everything I've got. I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, for just another moment, I'm going to ask you to remain in, a, in an attitude of prayer. But if you just took that step of faith, choosing to trust Jesus, then we want to welcome you into the family. We want to, we want to be a family with you and a couple of ways that that happens. Number one, if you would, please, just fill out the Connect card that you got. It's in your program. Fill it out and indicate there, I'm committing my life to Christ today. Tear it off at the perforation that's there on the fold. And before you leave, just hand that card to one of our ushers. And number two, if that was your prayer, would you just just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand. Just, just hold your hand up and hold, hold it up for just a brief moment. You're physically representing the spiritual commitment that you just made. And as a family, a church family, We celebrate that and we honor it. As you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.